Chapter Two of The House by the Lock by Mrs. C. N. Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Two The Man with the Pale Eyes. En passant, my eyes dwelt for an instant upon a stout woman of a certain age whose figure was encased in a sort of armor of steel-gray satin and beads, and whose carefully arranged head was adorned by a small tiara of diamonds, but they found no temptation to linger. One of the men was old, gray-haired, and large of girth, with a huge expanse of snowy shirt and a head guiltless of hair. The other was comparatively young, not many years past my own age, perhaps, and a curious thrill, which I could not myself have explained, passed through me as I looked, through half-shut eyes, at his face. Where had I seen it before? Or did it bear but a haunting resemblance to some other, painted on my memory's retina in lurid, yet partially obliterated colors? I had no doubt which of the two was Carson Wildred, Farnham's friend and host. What he had said of the man's personality assured me of his identity. It was passing strange to me that I should be so strongly impressed by the feeling that I had seen the face before, under startling and disagreeable circumstances, and yet be unable to identify it. Something seemed to be lacking, or changed, which broke the chain of evidence in my mind. Surely I should have been able to remember that peculiar nose, with the flattened bridge, now presented to me in profile. It would be a sign of a lacking bump of observation to have forgotten the angle of that protruding lower jaw, and the strong contrast between the almost copper-colored skin, jet-black hair, and large, brilliant blue eyes, so light as to appear almost white. It was impossible, I told myself, that I had met the man before. His remarkable and uncommon cast of features had no niche in my recollection, and yet I knew that in some crucial moment I had looked into those pale and scintillating eyes. A wave of repulsion swept over me. I could not remember when I had experienced two such keen emotions as my surprised admiration for the girl and the dislike, almost amounting to disgust, which I felt for Farnham's friend, Carson Wildred. Something deeper than mere annoyance surged in my breast, that that dark personality should lurk so near to the spotless whiteness of the gauzy drapery, which vaguely seemed to me a part of the girl's self. "'Eh? What did you say? How do you like his looks? Peculiar face, isn't it?' queried Farnham, close to my ear. "'Yes, it is peculiar,' I answered, mechanically, snatching at the phrase. "'And the girl! Isn't she something rather choice?' "'Very lovely. Who is she?' "'A Miss Karen Cunningham. Same name as the mine that Wildred is going to take off my hands. Merely a coincidence.' but I fancy it influenced him in his wish to buy the property, perhaps. He is very much in love with the girl, and, rich as he apparently is, she can more than match him, I should say. She's an orphan, whose father, though he came of what you English call a good family, 
made his pile in trade. And Sir Walter Tressidy, who is in the box with his wife, was her guardian until she came of age, about a year ago. She still lives with them, and Lady Tressidy takes her about. All these things Wildred, who is never so happy as when he is talking of Miss Cunningham, has told me. So, you see, I'm pretty well primed as to her antecedents, means, and so on. The girl has thirty thousand pounds a year if she has a penny. Whew! Only think what that means in American money. She could buy and sell me. I might have truthfully replied that the young lady could have had me without either buying or selling, since, for the first time since my callow days, these few moments had taught me what it was to experience a wild quickening of the pulses under the casual glance of a woman's eyes. She had seen me. So much satisfaction, at least, was mine. Wildred had doubtless pointed out his friend, and her gaze had passed on to me, drawn, perhaps, by the compelling magnetism of the strange new feeling which dominated me. Wishing to avoid the appearance of rudeness, I would have looked away, but I found myself for an instant unable to do so. It was ridiculous to fancy it, and yet I could not help imagining that the girl's exquisite face lighted up with an expression akin to interest as her eyes rested upon mine. It was for me a moment of intoxication, as I felt that those twin violet lakes received, full in their depths, the involuntary outpouring of my soul. A sensation as of being wrenched away from some safe mooring passed through me as she withdrew her gaze, and, turning her head, whispered to Lady Tressidy, who sat beside her. The latter then looked at me, and unhesitatingly put up her sparkling lorgnettes. Farnham had not failed to observe this little pantomime, and was vastly amused thereby. "'This is what comes of being a celebrity,' he chuckled. "'They've recognized you from the pictures that were in all the papers a couple of months ago.' or perhaps by the photos that were published when your book came out. "'Nonsense,' I said rather irritably. "'They're only annoyed, perhaps, at our staring. Let's turn our attention to the stage.' I set the example which I recommended, but before doing so I gave myself the indulgence of one more lingering glance, and saw that Carlson Wildred was eyeing me with undisguised interest. Was I mistaken? Was it only the faint emotion awakened by the mention of a name not quite unknown to the public? Or did the man share in my half-recognition of him? Whatever the feeling excited by the sound of my name or the sight of my face, it was certainly not a pleasant one. The one look I ventured showed me the pale eyes shadowed by a frown, and the gleam of white teeth as they gnawed the lower lip under the slight dark line of the mustache. He had glanced from me to Farnham, and something in his look told me that, for a reason to me unfathomable, he was displeased at seeing us together. At the end of the act we went out for a smoke and a breath of fresh air, and as we were returning we met Wildred near the stairway, which at the St. James's leads to the boxes on one side of the house. 
"'I was looking for you,' he said to Farnham, and the tones of the voice roused the same vague, unpleasant memories that the eyes had stirred. "'And we were just talking of you,' Farnham annoyed me by retorting. "'I should like to be the means of making you two known to each other. "'Of course, Wildred, you have heard all about Noel Stanton. "'This is actually he in the flesh, "'and he has been telling me that he believes he must have seen you somewhere before.' "'Mr. Wildred tossed away a cigarette and followed it with his brilliant eyes. "'He was smiling, but his lips were tense, as his gaze came back to me.' "'It is my misfortune,' he said, "'to be obliged to assure you that Mr. Stanton is mistaken. "'I know him as well as one can do without having met him, "'through his book, and a world-wide reputation, "'but beyond that I have not till now had the pleasure.' "'We looked into each other's eyes, "'and I knew the man lied, and that he hated me but the mystery of his personality and my share in his past was as profound a mystery as before. "'Lady Tressidy sent me out particularly,' he continued, "'in quest of you both, having recognized Mr. Stanton from his numerous counterfeit presentments, and she hopes that you will come and be introduced to her and to Miss Cunningham in their box.' Farnham looked at me doubtfully fearing, perhaps, that I would refuse. But, grudgingly as the message was evidently delivered by Wildred, I grasped at the opportunity it gave. I should speak to Miss Cunningham. I should know her. I might dare to look at her, and I might touch her hand. I have gone through some queer experiences in rather an eventful life, and have generally managed to keep a cool head in emergencies but my head was not cool tonight. Everything was dark to me, except the one lovely face raised smilingly towards me, as some murmured words of introduction were spoken in the box a little later, giving me the right henceforth to claim Miss Cunningham as an acquaintance. I suppose I answered coherently when Lady Tressidy addressed me, and talked without openly making an idiot of myself to Sir Walter, but I remember nothing of the conversation between the second and third acts, save the few words spoken by Miss Cunningham, and an invitation from Lady Tressidy to call on one of her at-home days. After I had gratefully accepted, I turned to the girl. "'Lady Tressidy has said I may come and see her,' I ventured. "'Will you—may I hope to find you with her when I do?' She looked up with a sudden, illumining smile that answered me. "'Come soon,' she returned. They were her last words for me that night, and they rang in my head as I left her, dizzy with the memory of her loveliness. End of chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline